Brothers and sisters, if you would turn your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 29 through 39. And as I mentioned in the welcome, uh, we are going to be looking at our fifth core value together of simplicity. And the title of this message is Simplicity Focused and Moving. Simplicity Focused and Moving. And this core value is a core value, as I mentioned before, is one of my favorites uh, because it pervades all the other four core values, as you'll see here in a moment. But before we look at our text, I want to, as I did last week when we looked at mercy and mission, I want to lay out a few guidelines of what I mean and what we as a church mean when we talk about simplicity. A lot of times we can hear this word simple and simplicity and think a whole slurry of things that may or may not be accurate. And so, so that we're on the same page, let me just lay out about four guidelines as it relates to what simplicity is. So first of all, simplicity does not mean easy. Simplicity does not mean easy. In fact, it's more difficult to be simple than to be complex. Most revolutionary aspect of the iPhone, and I use this in our membership class to explain what I mean by simplicity, the most revolutionary aspect of the iPhone when it was released back in 2007 was that it had one button. It was really popular in that day. I sold cell phones to, put to, to feed our family when I was in seminary. And uh, before the iPhone came out, I don't know if you remember or not, but there were these, these smartphones called Blackberries, and I think Blackberries still exist. Uh, but they had these full QWERTY keyboards. You know, they had the full keyboard, all these buttons on it. And uh, you thought that, wow, the more buttons, the better. But then Apple came out with this phone and it revolutionized everything because it was so simple. And they worked really, really hard to make it simple. And in fact, when asked about simplicity, Steve Jobs, the former CEO, the founder of Apple, one of the, one of the founders said this, simple can be harder than complex. You have to work hard to get your thinking clean in order to make it simple. So it is with us as a church. We have to get our thinking clean. I love that adjective, thinking clean to make it simple, to wash our minds with God's Word and to get it clean, to get it simplified so that we are focused and moving in the right direction. We need to be ultra clear on what our mission and vision as a church is in order to stay committed to our core value of simplicity. And what is that? It's to love God and love people. Simple, clear. And it has a whole, whole you know, flurry of ramifications in our lives. But that's our mission and vision. We have to be ultra clear on that in order to understand how to be simple. The tendency you see a lot of times in Christian circles is that we think that we have to do a lot of things to make a difference in the world. We can think that moving around with a ton of programs makes a difference in the world. and yeah, It does make a difference. But we can think that, that by stirring up a lot of dust that we've done a lot. And it did 50 or 60 years ago when our culture trusted the church a whole lot more and the church was more integrated into the life of the community where people came to church to receive goods and services over time and people trusted the church, but that's not the case really anymore. 
The fact is we can self-congratulate ourselves because we see a lot of dust that's been stirred up and think that things are changing. The fact is, is that it is in the digging of deeper that riches are found. Even better, it's not just through digging, just all over the place, but it's through digging strategically that you find gold. So when we speak about simplicity, we're talking about being clear on our purpose as a church. That's what we mean, first of all, when we talk about simplicity. But secondly, what we mean when we talk about simplicity is the assumption that we are a priesthood of believers. We are all ministers of God. That is, each one of us, as a member of Christ the Redeemer, has been indwelt by the Spirit of God to minister to other people. Therefore, there is an onus, a responsibility, a privilege for each of us to be ministers in the highways and byways of our daily existence. This is not a church where you can simply consume. It's also not a place, and hear me on this too, it's also not a place where you will be browbeaten to do something. Rather, we believe that you are most alive and most faithful as a disciple of Jesus Christ when you are serving others. It's in the serving that you are truly living. It's in the giving of yourself away that you truly are growing. But it's not a place where you should expect to just sit and receive a lot. But we receive. We eat at the table of the Lord in order to be able to go out. And, and it's in the going out and the exercising of the using of the caloric, spiritual caloric value that we actually are living and finding life. Third, third guideline when we speak about simplicity, and it flows from the first two guidelines, is simply this, is that simplicity doesn't mean we know that your life is busy, and uh, the last thing that you need right now is one more activity. So come here and you won't have to do a whole lot. <laughs> That's not what we mean when we talk about simplicity. Rather, when we speak about simplicity, we mean to say that because each one of us is a minister of God, each one of us is a priest of God, because we are most alive when we are sharing the beauty and love of God with others, we need to be ultra clear on what God has called each one of us to be and to do in the world. In other words, instead of depending on a lot of programs taking place at the church, you, you as an individual, are freed up to serve others. Simplicity means being freed to serve to be the minister that God has called you to be. What a beautiful picture. If every person in our church was freed to go and do instead of saying, oh, where, where do I fit in? Well, you can fit in in many different places. And in fact, you can carve a path where others can help and serve in those veins that you find most passionate, that you are most passionate about. But then lastly, when we speak about simplicity, we do not mean that we are anti-program. There are some churches that when they talk about simplicity or they talk about you know, life as a church, they say, we are not doing any programs. That's not where we're at. We are not anti-program. What it means is that we want each one of our programs at Redeemer to serve the mission and the greater vision of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
with our neighbors and laying down our lives in practical ways for them to love God and to love others. That's what we mean when we talk about simplicity. So, with those guidelines laid out, let's look at Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. Mark chapter 1, 29 through 39. And immediately he, meaning Jesus, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we got three points to follow these three paragraphs, and that's how I'm going to lay out our message today of simplicity, focused and moving. And our first point is this, and it comes from verses 29 through 31. The first point is this, is we serve to free others to serve. Did you catch that? We serve in order to free others to serve. You see here immediately, right? this word immediately, right? this word immediately runs throughout Mark's Gospel, and I believe it's instructive for how Jesus lived His life and how Jesus viewed His ministry in the world which in turn I believe is instructive for us and how we ought to live our lives. See, we shouldn't read immediately as though Jesus is rushing around Galilee with his, like a chicken with his head cut off. Like, oh, i gotta, I got to move. i got to get this done. i only got three years. That's not what Jesus is doing. And that's not what Mark is intending in this word immediately. He's not saying well, Jesus is really trying to get things done before the sun goes down. No, no, no. Immediately should be understood as Jesus having intention to what he did. You can see this alluded to in verse uh, 38. If you see there, he says, for that is why I came. He knew why he came. He was very clear on his purpose, and like a North Star, he was moving towards that purpose. (coughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) So he was moving towards this purpose, And that's why he was moving immediately. He wasn't getting caught up in all of this stuff that all the religious leaders of his day were trying to get him caught up into. See, Jesus was focused on his purpose, and he was adamant to accomplish what he was sent to do. And as a result, he, like Paul told Timothy, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs. Jesus was not getting entangled in civilian affairs because He was immediately moving from one place to the next so that He could preach, 
so he could tell others about the good news of the kingdom of God. And it's so easy, isn't it, to get entangled in so many different battles in our world. Not just in our world, not even in the political scheme that I talked about earlier, but even in the church. It's really easy to think that every little battle is the most important battle, and I am going to die on this hill. And we take these little molehills and we make them into mountains. We can spend our energy and time reading all the news articles and still not even make heads of all of it. That doesn't mean we ought to stick our heads in the ground, though, and just pretend like it's all just going to go away. It doesn't mean that we are so heavenly-minded that we are no earthly good. In fact, I would argue that we are so heavenly-focused that we bring the most earthly good. Because we are focused on the new heavens and new earth, we are seeking to mend that which is broken. We are seeking to serve others and say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. God didn't intend it this way. And so we look at all the brokenness in the world and we get to work to mend it, to heal it, to serve it. My friends, the message that we offer to the world is from God Himself. Let that sink in. He is beckoning His sons and daughters to come home to Him and find all of their deepest longings fulfilled in Him. And He's given us clear marching orders to be focused on what He has called us to do. Jesus gave us our marching orders before His ascension where He says, as you are going, make disciples of all nations. In Matthew 28. And then in Acts chapter 1, He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Our job is to love Him and love others. Our calling is to make disciples, to make disciples in community with others. And as we serve each other and as we serve our community as a community of believers, we serve them in our liturgy, our service of the people, by the people, for the people, but primarily for God. And then we go out into the world with mercy on a mission to tell other people about this great Savior. That's what it means to be a disciple. That's what it means to be a witness to what Jesus has done and who He is as King. Here in our text, we see Him not staying in the synagogue, right? In verse 29, He says, and immediately what did He do? He left the synagogue. We don't stay in the walls of this building. Yes, this building is extremely important for the building up of the saints. And why do we build the saints up? So that the saints can be strong enough to go out into the world and to lift the burdens of others. To be confident in their heart of hearts to know that this message is life-giving. We come here to get built up in our understanding of God's Word so that we can share that Word with other people. But, we must always leave. We must always leave here as children of God and servants of Christ to love and serve others. That's our calling. And so how do we do that? Well, Jesus entered Simon and Andrew's house. You see that with James and John. And our ministry happens in the context of being integrated, integrally involved in people's lives. 
in their homes and they in our homes. That takes great work. That takes great courage. That takes great intimacy to welcome people into your home in a very practical and real way. I'm not speaking figuratively. I'm speaking literally. Letting them into your home and you being welcomed into their home. See, because upon entering, we see needs and we serve people in those needs that they have. But if you're not in their home and if they're not in your home, you don't see the needs because we do a good job of washing our face, polishing our look so that people don't know. And in this text, Simon's mother-in-law was sick. Something that Jesus might not have known and, and, and others would not have known had they not gone into the home because it says that they told him about her. So it's in the entering of the home that you find out what are the real needs here. And what did Jesus do? He met her very practical and very physical need. He didn't merely teach her the Bible, which is really important, <laughs> but that's not what we see here, is it? He didn't say, just believe harder. Have more faith, mother-in-law. <laughs> no, what did He do? Look at verse 31. It says, He lifted her up. Remember what we talked about last week about mercy and mission, what it means to lift others up? This is what we see in our own Savior, that He lifted her up and saw her physical, practical need and said, let me lift you up. Let me bring wholeness to you. Let me serve you. He came alongside her and helped her. He didn't castigate her or chastise her. Say, man, what is wrong with you? You should have known better to get sick. <laughs> but this is what we're called to do, isn't it? Come alongside people to help them, to serve them, to lift them up. We learn God's Word in the synagogue. And I'm using that figuratively here to represent the place where God's people come to learn and to grow. And then we go out to put into practice what we have learned within these walls. That's the calling that God has put on our lives, to leave the synagogue and to enter houses. Leave the synagogue and enter houses. And here we see that in serving her very real need, what did she do? She got up to serve them. Now, I used to think that this was a pretty passive-aggressive way of getting someone to do something for me, right? Uh, Mother-in-law, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to heal you so that you can go get me a sandwich. But that is not what's happening here. It's a misunderstanding of the culture and the context of this passage. Instead, it was a joy and a privilege when someone entered your house. And you had the opportunity to serve their needs, to wash their feet, to give them a cup of cold water, and to get them a sandwich. It empowered you, and it let you know that you had something to offer them. You see where I'm going with this? Jesus served her so that she could see that she was made to serve others, and in serving others, that she felt fully alive. What a beautiful picture that she got to see what she was created for and that illness that was that, that was burdening her was keeping her from fulfilling that purpose and he saw that and he said sister get up you're well and you have something to offer me see being made in God's image most surely means that we are reasoning 
beings and that we are loving beings. As you know, theologians over the years have tried to think through, what is the image of God in man? What does that mean, image of God in man and woman? What is that? Well, it means that we're reasoning and it also means that we're loving, but I think it also means this, that we find our greatest joy in being godlike, being divine, as it were, in serving others. The creating God serves others. Every morning, He causes the sun to rise. He causes seed time and harvest to come about. The Lord serves His people. So what do we do as made in God's image? We serve others. So that they can be reminded that they have something to offer the world too. We serve so that they can be lifted up and their burdens lifted off of their shoulders so that they can do what God created them for. And in doing so, we see the beauty of the creating God on display. Somebody who was deemed useless by the world is lifted up and is given strength so that she can serve other people. She does have something to offer the world. What a beautiful opportunity we have to lift burdens, to help others, to serve others so that they can serve. But then secondly, in verses 32 through 34, we see our second point. We heal in order to free others to be whole. Let me say it again. We heal to free others to be whole. See, we see Jesus entering the intimate setting of Simon and Andrew's home to heal their mother-in-law in the previous paragraph so that she could live in the joy of why she was created. But we also see that in Jesus, people saw someone that they could bring their sick and dying relatives and friends to, don't we? Bring their sicknesses and their struggles. Look at verses 32 and 33. That evening at sundown, they brought to Him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Get this picture of them clamoring at the door saying, would you heal my brother and my sister and my friend? They're dying. They have demon possession. Would you heal them? Would you make them whole again? See, people were clamoring to just get near Jesus. And we need to remember what sickness and oppression and death were and what they are still. They were and they are fractures and interruptions in God's good creation. These things are the unraveling of the fabric, the beautiful tapestry of God's handiwork. The frayed Edges. Satan seeks to kill and destroy and to undo what God has done. To undo the beauty and the good in the world. When God says, it is good. It is good. Satan wants to rip it apart. And this is what we see. This oppression by demons. This breaking down of the fabric of which God says it is good. Our calling as God's people is to proclaim the good news. And in proclaiming the good news, what are we doing? It's not just a message, a general message. 
Right? This is a message that has teeth to it. This is a message that, like a needlepoint, is bringing together the frayed edges of the enemy's fraying. See, our work is generative. It generates, it makes, it creates. And as artist Mako Fujimura writes, he says, what is generative is the opposite of degrading or limiting. It is constructive. It is expansive, affirming, growing beyond a mindset of scarcity. Get that picture of what it means to be made in the image of God is constructive, expansive, more than you could ever ask or imagine. This is the kind of world that God wants us to inhabit. It's a world that is ever-expanding, that is being fruitful and multiplying, and the earth is being filled with the glory of God. That's the kind of work that we are to set about doing, that where there's oppression of demons and where there's sickness and death, that we come alongside and we set to write the fractured arms. In his uh, book, Culture Care, Fujimura goes on to share a story. It's uh, coming up on the 10-year anniversary, 10, 10 anniversary of the uh, disaster at Fukushima nuclear plant in Japan. You remember that? There was a tsunami, and that tsunami just devastated this nuclear plant, and then there was all of this nuclear leakage out. This was March of 2011. And then what did a Japanese farmer do? That summer, just a few months later, that summer, a Japanese farmer began planting sunflower seeds in the radioactive polluted ground. Why? Why would he do something like that? Everybody would say, that's stupid. That's foolish to plant sunflower seeds in this radioactive ground because he knew why. He knew that these sunflowers had a unique ability to suck out from the ground the radioactive isotopes from the ground and heal the earth. What a beautiful picture. In the midst of a world that is, that is frayed at the edges, that is radioactive and toxic, that we can throw seed on the ground. The beautiful, glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that can suck out the radioactive isotopes, the, the degenerative, the limiting, the scarcity, and expand people's vision of what they were created to do. We are called to plant gardens and bring healing to our world. And not only healing, but wholeness. To bring wholeness to our wor world. Yes, we also pray for God to bring healing from viruses and cancers and oppression by demons. Yes, we pray for those things because those still happen. Sickness and death and oppression by demons still exist. And so we pray that God would, in the name of Jesus, heal people. In the name of Jesus, that demons would flee. Yes, and we also set about the work of creating. So if you're an artist, if you're a teacher, if you're a doctor or a nurse, if you're a construction worker, if you're a parent, your calling is to repair and to heal the broken bits of the world in your little corner. You're not called to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders, but yes, in your Jerusalem, in your Judea, in your Samaria, you are called to be about the work of creating now and being witnesses and blessing witnesses throughout all 
the world. But even so, right now, what is God calling you to do in Greenville, South Carolina? I believe that He's calling us to heal the brokenness in our world, the frayed edges to set about mending them. And then finally, in verses 35 through 39, we see our third point here is that we pray and we proclaim so that we can be free. We pray and we proclaim so that we ourselves can be free. What do I mean by that? Well, we've done these other things so that others could be free to serve and free to be all that God created them to be, for them to be whole. But we do this prayer work and this proclaiming work for our own hearts so that we can be free. See, the world will pull us in many different directions. It will vie for our attention every single hour of every single day and say, pay attention to this. This is the most important news hour. And our own hearts will seek to justify ourselves that we are good enough and faithful enough and Christian enough and obedient enough. The Lord says, stop. Strip down all of those things that you think that I am looking at so that you are commended in my sight and look to one who has made you worthy. See, Jesus moved from place to place because He was utterly focused on His calling. Jesus moved from town to town because He was focused on His own calling. Look at verse 38 again. And Jesus said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. That is why I came out. He prayed early in the morning, right? Verse 35, And rising very early in the morning, He departed and went to a desolate place, and there He prayed. He prayed and He proclaimed. Our commitment to simplicity, I'll admit, requires a bit of maturity among our membership at Redeemer. We're challenging the North American Christian tendency to see church as a purveyor of goods and services. A place where your kids can be entertained and coddled A place with not only hot coffee, but a full-stocked coffee bar. A place where the beat is strong and the lights are perfectly lit. We are challenging that view of the church of being a place where, hmm, I just come and sit and receive. Gimme, gimme, gimme. We say, yes, it's good to receive. It's good to learn. It's good to be in a synagogue. But you were made for so much more than that. You were made by God to go out and heal and to help. And you can be free from this tendency in our culture and in our own hearts to be pulled in all these directions by saying, no, 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 I don't need to do that. I don't need to do that. I don't need to do that. I'm going to do this. I am going to pray and proclaim. That is what God has called me to do. Pray and proclaim. I don't know if you'll remember or not, but at the beginning of this year, I said my prayer for us as a church is that we would be a people committed to prayer. And I am asking that community groups focus on times of prayer together, that as individual families that you are praying together, 
That we are praying, asking God to bring the revival that we prayed for earlier. That God would bring revival in our own hearts. Times of refreshing would come in our own lives and in our own souls. That we would be a people committed to prayer. And that we would be a people committed to proclaiming the Gospel. To each other as a community of believers. And then to this world that desperately needs to hear about Jesus. Our calling as a church puts the privilege and the responsibility to be focused on why we exist. We need to know what God has called us to do. And by stripping away all of the good things, we can focus focus on the necessary thing. Our great calling is to be a people of prayer. What a great calling. What a beautiful calling. What a simple calling. That instead of scurrying around and running around, we would sit at Jesus' feet. The better thing. And a people to proclaim. That's our calling. Because we can busy ourselves with many good things, can't we? What it's going to require is the wisdom for us to say no to many good things so that we can say yes to a few things and do those few things exceptionally well. And I believe that as we, instead of stirring up dust, we dig deep, deep in our own hearts and ask the Spirit of God to dwell there and to fill us up so that we can be these kind of people who pray and proclaim, so that we can be free from all of the the strictures, the, the binding of all of these things and this busying of ourselves and being spread thin so much that we cannot focus on what God has called us to do and to be. That in healing this world in our own corner of the world, that we would seek to heal so that others can be whole and that we would serve others so that they can serve and see all that they were created to be as God's people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are so good to us. You are so kind to us. And we are so thankful. We're thankful that You use broken people. People that don't have their act together. We thank You that we have the privilege and the blessing and the responsibility to be freed, to minister, to pray and proclaim. Oh God, would You make Redeemer the kind of church that does just that. That says no to many good things so that we can say yes to a few great things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.